Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Brona McShane of NUI Maynooth. Her paper was entitled Representations of Violence Against Women in 1641 Rebellion Literature. In the aftermath of the 1641 Irish Rebellion, reports of atrocities perpetrated by Catholic rebels against Protestant settlers quickly made their way to London. Many of these reports were subsequently published in pamphlet accounts, which flooded the London news circuit in the wake of the uprising. In fact, between October 1641 and April 1642, the first six months of the conflict, London printers produced over 160 works on the rebellion in Ireland. That figure constituted as much as 22% of England's total printed output for the period. Clearly, the 1641 rebellion and its literature has been the subject of much scholarly attention, particularly with the recent digitisation of the 1641 depositions. One aspect which has received less consideration, however, and which will be the focus of my paper this morning, is the representation of violence against women in the rebellion literature. As Naomi McAreevy has observed, in the aftermath of the rebellion, graphic accounts of atrocities committed against women came to play a crucial role in the mythologization of the event. Dramatic tales of the torture, murder, and dismemberment of women particularly mothers and pregnant women, quickly became synonymous with the story of Catholic atrocity and sectarian cruelty in Ireland. Um, This paper will examine how representations of violence against women are highlighted and indeed exploited in the graphic accounts and images of the period. Uh, The structure of the paper will incorporate three sections. Um, To begin, I will examine briefly representations of violence against women as depicted in ephemeral pamphlet accounts. These accounts, which appeared in the first few months of the rebellion, were based largely on personal dispatches sent to London from individuals in Ireland. Here I will focus specifically on one pamphlet, um, namely James Cranford's The Tears of Ireland, published in 1642. I will then move on to explore representations of violence against women into larger treatises on the rebellion, compiled um, using official government sources. They are Henry Jones's Remonstrance and Sir John Temple's The Irish Rebellion. Finally, this paper will consider briefly the subsequent dissemination of John Temple's representation of the female victims of 1641 in contemporary martyrologies. In this instance, I will concentrate on one martyrology, Um, entitled A General Martyrology, published in 1651 by the London pastor Samuel Clarke. Ephemeral pamphlet literature published in the immediate wake of the rebellion was widely diverse in its content and claims. A common trait of most, however, was to emphasise the more shocking and horrifying aspects of victim suffering in Ireland. Included among some of these pamphlets were a bloody battle, bloody news from Ireland, worse and worse news from Ireland, the tears of Ireland. Um, so titles such as these, I think, demonstrate quite effectively pamphleteers' tendencies towards the sensational. 
Cranford's account, however, um, perhaps held the greatest shock value for audiences by virtue of the fact that the atrocities described therein were vividly illustrated in a series of printed images. Out of a total of 24 images included in Cranford's compilation, no less than 10 depict some form of violence against women. Um, this slide shows just one of those images, and it is graphic, I warn you. It depicts an act of atrocity which took place five miles outside Kilkenny in early December 1641 at the home of a man named Master Atkins. It is significant in the context of this paper that while the accompanying caption makes clear reference to the attack against the male victim, the illustration depicts only the treatment afforded the woman, Master Atkins's pregnant wife. The caption reads that, at one Master Atkins's house, seven papists broke in and beat out his brains, then ripped up his wife with child, then took they the child and sacrificed it in the fire. <clears throat> As Mary Louise Coulahan has highlighted, the gendered situation of the pregnant woman with its straightforward connotations of vulnerability and infant in innocence occupied a memorable space in the collective imagination. And thus, an image such as this had the effect of immediately seizing the viewer's attention. Um, accounts of brutal assaults perpetrated against women were not confined to the Stuart realm alone, however. News of Catholic rebel cruelty in Ireland also spread further afield to, to continental Europe, as evidenced by this image taken from a Dutch pamphlet. It depicts the murder of a male figure named only as Sir, who is shown at the centre of the image. Uh, notably, it is the image of the pregnant woman on the right-hand side, um, which seems to command the viewer's gaze. She, like the woman in the Cranford image, has her unborn child cruelly torn from her womb by the attacking rebels. Thus, as these two examples demonstrate, the gendered situation of the pregnant woman, with its not-so-subtle nuances of innocence and vulnerability, was heavily exploited not only by pamphleteers in the Stuart realm, but also in Europe. <coughs> the gruesome image of the dismembered maternal body was also favoured by authors of larger treatises on events in Ireland. The works of Henry Jones, Dean of Kilmore and later Bishop of Meath, and Sir John Temple, a prominent politician and member of the Irish Privy Council, fall into this category, and it is these works that I will now turn my attention to. Jones and Temple, both well-esteemed authors, made extensive use of official government sources in the compilation of their accounts. Notably, a core component of both texts consisted of reproductions of the original depositions. <coughs> as, we knows, as we know, these were a collection of over 3,000 witness testimonies made by victims of the rebellion and recorded by official government commissioners. In using the depositions, both authors appeared to provide a reliable bona fide account of events in Ireland. However, as has become apparent during the course of my research, in their inclusion of deposition material, both authors were considerably selective and manipulated heavily the evidence at their disposal. <coughs> Omitting what they regarded as banal details such as the itemisation of economic losses, 
allowed Jones and Temple greater scope to include the more shocking elements of deponent testimonies, notably instances of violence against women. women. In doing so, both Jones and Temple sought to serve a particular propaganda purpose, namely to exacerbate fears of Catholic rebel cruelty in Ireland. It is important to bear in mind, however, that within the depositions collection, the number of cases recording instances of violence against Protestant settlers are relatively few. For example, of the original 73 depositions recorded for County Dublin, only 10 refer to acts of violence against Protestant victims. Within this, the record of instances of violence involving women are even fewer again. However, in the remonstrance, Jones selected for inclusion the testimony of one Dublin-based Protestant named John Manfield. In his unique testimony, Manfield reported, and this is cited on your handout um, as extract one, um, that some of the rebels in that county did strike his wife and stab her with a skein when she had a young child sucking. <coughs> Jones's manipulation of deposition evidence relating to the Dublin region was by no means unique, however, and is entirely consistent with his portrayal of the rebellion elsewhere in the country. For example, in its original form, cabin landholder Thomas Crant's deposition contained information on a native Irish landlord who intervened to protect the deponent. However, in the edited version of the deposition printed in the remonstrance, none of this information appears. Instead, Jones's text places at centre stage Cramps vague recollections of a rumoured massacre in County Monaghan, detailing specifically the treatment afforded female victims there. The extract, and this is extract two, cited that divers women and children were murdered, lying unburied till dogs spoiled their corpse, women with child murdered, and some died for cold after being stripped forth of their clothes, lying unburied. Henry Jones's remonstrance served as a model for later writings on the Irish uprising. Perhaps the most significant account for which his treatise provided a framework was John Temple's The Irish Rebellion. Temple's treatise, which went through more than 10 editions between its first appearance in 1646 and its final publication in 1812, <clears throat> has arguably had the most profound influence on perceptions and memories of 1641. In compiling his account, Temple, like Jones, but perhaps to a greater extent, typically chose the more lurid elements of deponent testimony. Keenly aware of their polemic value, Temple maintained a firm propensity for highlighting instances of atrocity against women. We can see his preoccupation with this particular aspect of rebel cruelty when he stated that this horrid kind of cruelty was principally reserved by these inhumane monsters for women, whose sex they neither pitied nor spared, hanging up several women, many of them great with child, whose bellies they ripped up as they hung, and so let the little infants fall out. In addition to highlighting numerous graphic instances of violence perpetrated against pregnant women, Temple also included accounts of brutality against multiple female victims of the same family. For example, in his reproduction of the deposition of James Shaw, 
a vicar, temples selected for inclusion, an extract recounting an attack carried out by rebels in County Carlow against a mother and her young daughter. In a slight editorial adjustment, however, Temple manipulated the original deposition in order to provide a more horrifying account for his readers. Whereas Shaw's original testimony stated that the mother and daughter were hanged up upon a tree by the hair of their heads, Temple's reproduction heightens the, barba the barbarity of the act by stating, captured in extract three, that the wife of Jonathan Lynn and his daughters were seized upon by the rebels near the town of Carlick, carried by them into a little wood called Stabletown Wood, and there the mother was hanged and the daughter hanged in the hair of the mother's head. As we will see a little later, this particularly emotive instance of female victimhood involving members of the same family would later be taken up by another author, Samuel Clark, in the composition <coughs> of his Martyrology. Demonstrating the violence of the Irish Catholic rebels through accounts of brutalised Protestant women, the Irish rebellion did more than merely shock and horrify its readers. Temple's account also offered a new type of religious martyr for the Protestant cause. When, while John Temple did not make explicit use of the term martyr when referring to victims of the rebellion, he did overtly position his text within a martyrological tradition. We can see this recognition when nearing the end of his account, Temple wrote, but I shall not here touch any further upon those who died thus gloriously. This will be a worthy work for some more able pen to undertake, and indeed fit for a martyrology. Temple's representation of the victims of 1641 was indeed taken up and included in martyrologies. In 1651, just four years after the initial publication of Temple's text, and notably on the 10th anniversary of the outbreak of the Irish Rising, Samuel Clarke, shown here on the right, published a revised edition of his earlier martyrology. Entitled A General Martyrology, in this edition, Clarke, for the first time, added a section chronicling events in Ireland during the rebellion. That Clarke relied heavily on Temple in putting together his own account of the Irish conflict is blatantly evident. All of Clark's Irish atrocity accounts are taken from Temple. To discuss the extent of Clark's reliance on Temple, however, is beyond the scope of this paper. One brief example will illustrate my point. You may recall the incident captured on extract three recounting the fate for the two female members of the Lynn family in County Carlow. That incident is reproduced by Clark and is cited on extract four. In a very subtle editorial intervention, you will notice Clark's inclusion of the term good wife when referring to the mother, a term not used in the testimony produced by Temple or in the original deposition. His use of poetic license here is perhaps indicative of Clark's attempts to portray the female victims of 1641 as virtuous and thus as worthy martyrs for Protestantism. What is even more interesting, however, is that Clark's martyrology also included a set of eight woodcuts 
depicting a number of the Irish atrocities. Among them is an image shown here um, of the mother and daughter Lynn. The caption above the image reads, a woman hanged and her daughter in her hair. As this image demonstrates, it was Temple's representation of the Irish rebellion with its heavy emphasis on dramatic instances of violence against women, which was most widely disseminated and conveyed to popular audiences. To conclude then, this paper has shed light on the gender dimension of the 1641 Irish Rebellion by examining how representations of violence against women were highlighted and indeed exploited in contemporary accounts. The subsequent dissemination of Temple's representation of female victimhood in Protestant martyrologies further illuminates the sectarian dimension of the conflict, while consideration of the European perspective deepens our understanding of the 1641 Irish Rebellion and its representation within the wider context of early modern Europe. Thank you.